Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decision. You stated your name with gusto today, and today I liked was it. The, I really, really liked it. Today was the name day. Yeah, 11-11-22, y'all. <laughs> Amy's name day. Yeah. And on today's show, Aaron Willis, associate professor at the University of Colorado what, what? at Boulder. Yeah, it really is your show. Uh, she has research that examines the ways in which health messages influence people's behaviors, and she's particularly interested in the process by which health behavior is shaped by the information and technology that people use every day. So we had her on to talk about her research in a recent article she published on patient influencers. Exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> Amy and I will discuss that interview after it plays a little bit later in the show. We also have the latest from The Well. The Well. With Jessica Lauren Richmond, this time a segment that spends some time looking back at the past to investigate how the past informs the present. Mm. Sounds like it also might involve a little time travel. Oh? Hard to say. You'll have to stick around. We've got all of that and more on today's show. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and I here on Bloodstream. If you haven't already, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts and follow Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter for all those updates on new episode releases. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com. Where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy Board. <laughs> I'm still happy about the bleedingdisorders.com. We did not practice that. Everybody. And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey. Wherever on that journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though you probably don't need it, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Oh, Amy Board. I am so excited for this section because we have it entitled here, What Do We Talk About Here? <laughs> you know, you don't have to tell them that. But it's just so funny. It's highlighted. Oh, they did, but laugh. then there's a whole bunch of ideas over on the right-hand <laughs> side in a comment box. I know. We've got so much stuff actually to talk about, but it made me laugh. There's a whole load of stuff. I saw a bunch of people we know uh, this you past weekend. did. Because I was in Western Pennsylvania. Western PA. For the Bleeding Disorders Foundation of Western PA's yep. Education Weekend. Oh, they're back. Education Weekends are back. First time <laughs> this meeting has happened in person since 2019. That is crazy. And it was the first time we've done a Let's Talk screening in person. We've done, I don't know, six, seven of them mm -hmm. virtually for the last 18 months or, I don't know, six years. I have no idea how long it's been at this point. But this was the first time. And, you know, not for nothing, it's a film that's centered around mental health yeah. and, and challenges to people's mental wellness. So being in the room together with, yeah. you know, 60, 70 people for a screening as opposed to, like, we're watching it on Zoom and hoping yeah. it doesn't have the stutter effect, you <laughs> yeah. know, like... It was a. It was really, really, really nice. Oh, that's so nice. And got to tell a lot of people about the surgery. I talked ankles with so many hemo bros. <laughs> so much hemo bro ankle talk. Talking mm. to young guys, talking to older guys, guys my age, guys just a little older. 
I didn't have that much time for just general socializing while yeah. I was there. It was a very quick trip. Yeah. But I got a lot of ankle talking. That's so great. <laughs> High volume of ankle talk. High volume of ankle talk. I love that, though. That's tremendous. Yeah. So it was really good. And then I came back to Los Angeles and it was raining. It's and it's like raining. the whole city has been turned and on its head. I don't know if... Y'all, I mean, if you're not from California, I, I am a I am a California transplant. I have just moved here. You no, know, you past, no, not like, just. You do this true. all the time. I know it's like three years at least. Like you've it's been like three, here four years. Yeah, it's it's that's ridiculous. But anyway, uh, rain here is like an event. Yeah, it's like it's not it's not like even a snowstorm no. that you have in the Midwest. It's like a blizzard that shuts down Correct. the town Correct. for like three days. That's what it's like. Yes. And uh, I am, I mean, just immediately engulfed in the culture. I, I, it, it blows my mind I did not stay home today because, <laughs> I mean, I, I like wanted to make an excuse like I should stay home today and be cozy and it's all the things. That's not a part of the L.A. culture that you have to adopt when you come here. You're, you're allowed to not be totally thrown off by rain. It's, it's actually something from the Northeast I brought with me. I know. It just like makes, it's like, I don't think I'm going to participate today. You know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit and enjoy the rain. Well, if you're in a position in life where you can make that choice, it's just I, not. I'm not. I had to come in. That's I'm true. not. But anyway, yeah, it was raining in LA. And now we just got to be very careful behind the wheel. Um, <laughs> we've got a, we've got a bunch of big stuff to talk about. I did just want to shout out one other quick thing. Um, I'm going to a gene therapy roundtable at the World Federation of... I'm going to a gene therapy roundtable. Oh, my God. Y'all, if I had a nickel every time PJL told me that. Uh, <laughs> I, wish, I wish that was more of a joke. <laughs> but I am. And it's being hosted by the World Federation of Hemophilia in Montreal yeah. on like the 15th, 16th, 16th, 17th, coming up next week, which means um, I think our episode that will close out this month, we're going to be talking a, a fair amount about things that we are grateful for as it will be a Black like, Friday yeah. wake of Thanksgiving episode. But I will also give a couple of you know top line takeaways from that meeting because I've never been to one of these. I think this is like the fifth that the WFH has hosted and it has some of the smartest smarty pants. I don't know why I'm there to be honest. I think they had invited me to like moderate something, but I was never given follow-up information. And so, so now I, you're just going to go. I'm just showing up. I have no idea what's expected no, of me. No, I love it because, like, I I have never heard that this is a thing at WFH, and it, it's because it's probably, as you said, it's probably smart people. I'm like, you know, whatever. <laughs> so the fact that you'll be able to, like, write down bullets and disseminate, like, some of the things that stood out to you, I think is fantastic. So, listeners, uh, Black Friday, when you're, go- when you're going nuts... <laughs> At Sears, yeah. trying to get you know lawn mower, discounted lawn mower. <laughs> appliances. You can listen to Bloodstream, and PJL is going to give us some facts. That's right. Nothing says Black Friday like gene <laughs> therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll start offering gene therapy discounts on Black Friday. Oh, that is a good idea. Who do we bring that to? What suggestion box does that? Go? I, I know mailbag. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com, and we'll make sure to get that to the right authorities. <laughs> Um, okay, so we have a terrific and Ugh, insightful interview with Aaron so Willis good. coming yeah. up. And afterwards, you and I will chat about it. Um, but that's going to be coming up right after this. Genentech has local education managers, or CEMs, who offer one-on-one support throughout your entire hemophilia journey. Though they don't provide medical advice, your local CEM has years of nursing and clinical experience. To get in contact with a CEM, visit www.talktoacem.com. Can I call them a chem? (laughs) 
No, because it's talk to a chem, not a chem. I didn't follow that at all. Oh, wait, you mean like a chem? Like, hey, can I see a chem? Hey, like is there a chem, a chem over there? We like love C-E-M. acronyms. And like chem. C- yeah, like chem. It's, it's right there. I'm going to write an email. Give me a sec. Mailbag. <laughs> all right, let's hear from Aaron Willis, and then Amy and I will talk about it on the other side. Okay, joining me now is Aaron Willis from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Uh, Aaron, welcome to Bloodstream. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So listeners, I want to tell you a bit about Erin from her bio on the University of Colorado Boulder's website. Associate Professor Erin Willis earned her doctorate from the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Her research examines the ways in which health messages influence people's behaviors. Erin is particularly interested in the processes by which health behavior is shaped by the information and technology that people use every day. The goal of her research is to explore how message design can influence people's understanding about health and health promotion, which is central to public health. Her work has appeared in notable journals such as Health Communication, Health Psychology, Health Informatics, and Health Promotion and Practice. And she joined the University of Colorado in Boulder from the University of Memphis, where she served as an assistant professor. And prior to academia, Willis worked in public relations and marketing communications. And I did notice that in addition to the associate professor title, Erin, you're listed as the ComRap director, which I must admit is a new title for me. So you'll have to let me and the listeners know, what are the responsibilities of a ComRap director? This is the residential academic program for our college. And so we actually serve a population of students, first year students, and they take classes from our college actually in the dormitory. And so I'm just there cultivating community and and trying to connect those students to not only our college, but the university, because it's such a large school. They need some help sometimes connecting. And so our university has a lot of residential academic programs, or RAPs, as we call them. Mm. And those are just kind of to get students going in their majors and finding resources that are available to them. Neat. Okay. Well, you learn something every day. So let me ask you this then. How did you come to have this specialized focused that you have on this intersection of healthcare, marketing, and journalism, if that's even an accurate way to characterize your work. And please tell me if there's a better way. No, all these fields are merging and have been merging for many years now. And so I'm really interested in the patient perspective of healthcare. And when you think about that 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was a relatively new concept or we were just beginning down this journey. And so my background professionally is in marketing and advertising. And so it makes sense that we would draw on those fields to get the attention of patients to change their behaviors or, you know, to change their attitude about something. And so it seemed like a natural fit to marry those different fields for me and what I'm interested in. Did you have any particular mentors or figures who inspired you that did similar kind of work or were interested in a similar intersection? So my advisor at the University of Missouri is Shelley Rogers, and she studied online health communities, and she's kind of one of the first ones publishing in the intersection of advertising and mass communication. Mm. And so she looked at online communities related to cancer and how they provide social support Mm. through mediated communication. And so I uh, enjoyed studying under her and really learned a lot, but started down that road in online communities. And so that's really where a lot of my 
research lies is in online health communities. You know, like a Mayo Clinic Connect would be an example, or a WebMD has an mm. online community, or even like the Diabetic American Diabetes Association. And so communities of support. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And, and that leads nicely into what we're primarily here to speak about. I was sent an email with an article that highlighted your research project titled Patient Influencers, The Next Frontier in Direct-to-Consumer Pharmaceutical Marketing. And as a patient, and one that has a podcast, which is supported with funding from pharmaceutical industry, and as the owner of an agency that's specialized in pharmaceutical and healthcare marketing, this is a topic of great interest to me. I have the abstract from the study pulled up, and I'm happy to read it for the benefit of our audience, unless you'd prefer to give a version of it in your own words. Go ahead, and then I can talk about it. Perfect. So here's the abstract. Social media influencers are becoming an increasingly popular strategic communication tactic used across industry verticals, including entertainment, fashion, and beauty, to engage directly with consumers. Pharmaceutical companies have also recently entered the social media marketing arena and, within the bounds of governmental regulations, have found ways to build relationships directly with patients using covert persuasion tactics like partnering with social media influencers. Due to consumers' negative perceptions of pharmaceutical companies, it makes sense that new marketing tactics are being used to establish and improve relationships with consumers. Previous research well documents the ethical dilemmas of direct-to-consumer advertising, and there is recent burgeoning literature on online covert marketing tactics. The academic and medical literature, however, is behind in regard to social media influencers used in health and medicine. This paper highlights and defines terms used in industry practice and also calls for more investigation and sets forward a research agenda. As consumers spend more time online and patients continue to consult social media for health information, it is important that this new marketing trend does not go unnoticed. That is the end of the abstract. And let me simply lay out here, Aaron, for you to comment on that as you'd see fit. Yeah, so this is kind of a bigger practice than we academics know about, I think. And so pharmaceutical companies, marketers, they're already doing this. If you've been on TikTok lately or Instagram, most likely you've probably seen a direct-to-consumer advertisement for pharmacy. And then now with influencers coming along and also endorsing products, it's uh, just interesting to think about because we're so used to just content, right? Flipping through content so quickly. And so it makes sense that they would jump in and advertise because they're on Facebook and Twitter, pharmacy companies. But I guess it took me by surprise that they would be influencers. That's where I kind of, uh, you know, was like, wow, that's interesting. Why? Why would this be happening? Or does this look the same as direct-to-consumer advertising on television? Is it the same? Mm. And so that's one of the reasons we set out to study this. Well, that's a great reference, actually, because in it, you point out that pharmaceutical advertising in the United States is nothing new. We see it on television constantly and have for quite a while. So I'm curious what you learned. Is there something new happening here? And if so, how do you characterize it or think about it following the work that you did in this research? Since that article that I wrote that you read, we've done some interviews with patient influencers. And so this is a tricky term because some marketing companies, healthcare marketing companies, recruit patients to work then with pharmacy or other medical device companies. Right. And so 
where it's all going or when we did the interviews is patients are connecting with pharmacy companies. They always have, right? Right. Advisory boards, research panels. But now they're partnering on personal platforms, personal social media Mm. platforms. And so that's where it gets interesting and where we believe it's a little bit different than social media influencers. So we all know like Kim Kardashian or any influencer that you follow, whatever it's for, like sport, fashion, right? We all probably follow them on our social media. But when you think about a patient and a disease category, right, do we follow other people because they have the same disease that we have? Mm. We started thinking about this. Could the disease category be the brand category, right? Mm. And when we started doing these interviews, that's how the patient influencer would identify. So like there would be leaders in diabetes, for example, of these patients. And then these patients are working with both healthcare marketing companies and then pharmaceutical companies to do direct-to-consumer advertising. And so it has been happening for a long time, but the difference is there's no regulation on social media. And so the FDA closely monitors pharmaceutical advertising, but on social media, that's not true. They do, but it's very difficult for the FDA to actually monitor the quantity of information that's being posted and then to actually regulate the messaging that's coming through. And especially in some of these new platforms like Instagram or TikTok with the short form video, it's especially difficult for the FDA then to regulate those platforms and those different functionalities. Why is that? Well, just human resources, number one, but the budget dedicated to regulating on social, the FDA's budget is very small. And they just don't have the capacity to do it. The guidelines haven't been updated in a long time. 2014, I believe, is the last time the FDA guidelines have been updated for pharmacy to work with social. And when you think about Hmm. 2014 and social media, I mean, TikTok wasn't even... Exactly. And so, you know, two things. When I set out to do this research, like public perception on pharmacy is is low, right? Mm -hmm. The Edelman Trust Barometer talks about that. So we know people have a low point of view of pharmacy. But on the other hand, there's like half of Americans that take a prescription drug. Right. So we don't trust them, but we need them, right? Right. And so (laughs) pharmacy is not out to hurt patients, right? They need to help patients. And pharmacy wants to learn from patients. And so when I set out on the research, I was a little bit unsure of the practice, right? Did I think it was ethical? What's happening here? Is it taking advantage of patients? And so the more patients I interviewed, the more I learned that, no, pharmacies wanting to collaborate, patients want to collaborate, but they also want to do it in a safe way for other patients, Mm -hmm. right? And they don't want to mislead patients or recommend something that they shouldn't, that a doctor should be recommending. And so the people that we interviewed were very aware of the FDA guidelines or what they should and should not be saying to other patients. Hmm. And so this practice in some ways could be really good, right? For education maybe and for disease awareness. I think it definitely could be good. What did you learn? Definitely has some dangers. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that for a moment. (laughs) What did you learn that was maybe even more concerning than you speculated about ahead of time? Well, I think 
it's the just the lack of regulation and how different pharmacy companies work differently with different patients and how much big business this is, I guess. I was kind of shocked by it. Hmm. So some of the contracts are looking just as good or generous as maybe, you know, another social media, a popular social media influencer might be. But in other circumstances, there weren't enough opportunities for patients to get involved and they wanted more opportunity to interface with pharmacy. So I learned that there's risk, there's pitfalls. Some of the people we interviewed had went through patient advocacy training. And when you go through patient advocacy training, you learn about regulation and you learn about the difference between giving advice and making recommendations, Mm. but also like the boundaries between you and the person who's asking for advice. Hmm. Whereas other patients hadn't went through that advocacy training, so they didn't have the same views on what could and could not be shared and the ways it could be shared. So I think part of it is there needs to be some best practices set up for pharmacy. Like how should pharmacy be working with patients? How should patients be working with pharmacy, right? And what regulation needs to happen from the FDA that kind of makes everyone safe, right? We we want both patients and pharmacy to be safe when using these kind of marketing tools. Something I really appreciate about what you've published is it carries with it nuance. And you just spoke about, for example, the benefits of having an online community and the social support that can come with and yet there's also the the drawbacks and the watchouts. I want to change our prism just a little bit here. Pharmaceutical companies spending exorbitant amounts of money to commercialize and market their products is not new. We talked about advertisements a few minutes ago. In fact, they've spent tons of money to partner with and influence doctors and healthcare professionals for a long time. In fact, your research cites that in 2016, over $20 billion dollars were spent in the United States on promotional budgets marketing to healthcare professionals. And that includes activities like free samples and direct physician payments. And you note that a substantial portion of the direct payments go towards sponsoring key opinion leaders and how physicians have long been influencing other physicians by giving keynote speeches and lectures at educational events and serving as product champions or ambassadors for pharmaceutical companies. My question for you is what's different about this interaction that pharmaceutical companies are having with patients, and should we be viewing it much differently than the way we view pharmaceutical companies' interaction with healthcare professionals? That's a great question because we, my co-author and I go back and forth on this all the time because during COVID, we saw how many doctors come forward on TikTok and really try to be influencers with the message of vaccination. And on Twitter, right, doctors are very common. Doctors influencing other doctors on what drugs to prescribe. And so there's so much out there with doctors being influencers. And so what is the difference? And I think we could probably debate about this for hours because there's some differences, right? Doctors are trained and they have went through medical school and maybe a specialty training and and they are uh, required to do advanced trainings every year versus patients. We don't really know their health literacy. We don't know really what education or training they've been through. And so... I honestly, because my background is studying online health communities, 
I think there's great value in patient communication online. I think there's great value in patients connecting with other patients. I think we can learn self-management behaviors. I think we could crowdsource information. We could learn from advice that other patients receive from their doctors, right? I think there's great value in that. But I think the danger comes in, especially now, right, in the age of misinformation and disinformation. But I've been asked this so many times on panels when I've spoken, why aren't patients mean to each other online? Or is there a lot of mis or disinformation in these online patient communities? And the answer is no, actually. You know, in these patient communities, they want to help each other find the knowledge that they need to make their lives better because they've went through this terrible experience. Or like with the patient influencers we interviewed, the reason that they are influencers is because they feel like there was a gap in in their experience. They didn't have what they needed. And so I find there to be great value in patient information. But what I think is that there's not enough thought given to how we can create structures to make patients better partners in their own healthcare. So for instance, in most chronic illnesses, right, self-management of some sort is required. In most illnesses, it's required. Taking your medicine on time, exercising, whatever it might be. When you think of an online community or any kind of self-management program, it's often built not with the patient included in, you know, maybe the interface or Mm. the content or how it's delivered. Mm -hmm. And I think this is kind of what patient influencers are doing. They found a platform where they can connect with other patients and be like a resource center, connecting other patients with the tools and information they need. And so I wish more platforms would think about that because if we train patients to be the right kind of partners in their own healthcare, you know, to use the information in the right ways. I actually think that this all could be great. It could be great for self-management. It could be great for patient education, right? Health promotion, all of these things. But I think more thought has to be put into like the user face and how the website's designed or how the self-management program, you know, is being delivered or Even the ad that's being put on Instagram with the patient influencer, right? I think maybe pharmaceutical advertising could be doing more than just promoting a drug, but also, you know, promoting quality of life behaviors. Whose responsibility do you think it is to come up with those standardizations and regulations for how patient influencers are appropriately prepared for the responsibilities of that role? So that's a great question. I think that should be a product of bringing patients, doctors, pharmacy, researchers all together and creating an understanding of really, you know, we all know that pharmacy wants to make money and we all know that patients want to live a good life. And I don't know that those two goals are in opposition to each other, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. When sometimes we think they are. Mm And so I think if different stakeholders would come together, I do think uh, best practices because the FDA is never going to be able to keep up with technology and and all these platforms, you know, and and all the regulation that needs to be done. Mm -mm. And so I think 
best practices, right? And if pharmacy companies and, and marketing companies especially, you know, kind of agree that, yes, this is important, then I think that's the way to go. And I think that's realistic, kind of a self-regulation, if you will. Realistic, but as best we know, no movement like that has yet started. Is that correct? Well, so I met a girl named Sinea from Generation Patient. Have you heard of this organization? I have not. She is a patient and she's trying to lobby the FDA to put a warning label before pharmacy ads are shown on TikTok and Instagram. Like almost like, have you seen those warnings that come up that says like explicit content oh, or sure. maybe sensitive content? Yeah, yeah. Could those come up before a pharmaceutical ad? And so she's definitely trying to lobby the FDA to notice this field. But no, I think all stakeholders are interested, but no effort has been done to bring them together. But I would say she's probably the closest thing that is going on right now. I did just, I just looked her up. I recently saw something of hers that was retweeted into my feed. So she was peripherally on my radar and now she's squarely on my radar. Yes, she's an impressive young woman. And I would say, I think she'll change some FDA regulations because she's going hard at sensitive content and thinking about who uses Instagram too, like the age range mm. and how, what if a 14 year old were seeing pharmacy ads and just thinking about who the audience is and what's right for them really to be seen. Well, thank you for putting this effort on my radar. It sounds like she would be a great guest for Bloodstream as well. And it's very, yes. it's interesting to hear you speak about the work and the complexities of it. My last question for you before we wrap up is what research do you have ahead of you or do other colleagues have that will build upon the work that you've done here so far? Two things. So first, I think it's important that we actually define what a patient influencer is and how that is different from a, just a pop culture, social media influencer. And the main difference is, is really their following and that it's patients, a lot of patients, right? So they might have a better reach and engagement than even a traditional social media influencer. Mm -hmm. So I think setting up that definition is important because the second thing is we need to find out the effect. What's the influence a patient influencer has? And is that influence stronger on the platform because, you know, the patient is identifying person to person, disease to disease, maybe patient to patient. So is the effect of the influence maybe stronger? So are they going to ask for that drug more often? Well, we will keep alert to the ongoing research into this very necessary issue. And, and again, as a patient, I appreciate the seriousness with which and the multi-pronged perspectives that you use to inform research into this area. So thank you for that work. Aaron Willis, Associate Professor and Comms Rap Director at the University of Colorado Boulder, lead author of Patient Influencers, The Next Frontier in Direct Consumer Pharmaceutical Marketing. There is a link in the program notes if you would like to read it for yourselves. And Aaron, thank you so much for joining us here in Bloodstream. Thank you so much. PGL, that was so great. And I cannot wait to debrief. I am glad to hear that. Oh, my goodness. So let's get to our debrief, but right after this message. The Bloodstream podcast is brought to you in part by a new campaign from CSL Baring called Portraits of Progress. In the 1950s, life expectancy for people living with hemophilia was less than 20 years old. However, over the past 70 years, the treatment landscape has evolved rapidly, giving patients new options and a new lease on life. 
CSL Baring and acclaimed portrait photographer Rankin have teamed up to chronicle the evolution of hemophilia treatment by sharing portraits of the incredible patients, caregivers, and professionals who are personally affected by the disease. Check out www.portraitsofprogress.com, a virtual photo exhibition, to learn more about the personal struggles and triumphs of the hemophilia community and how the pace of progress in hemophilia treatment has transformed lives. From the days of minimal treatment options to the potential of gene therapy of today, this community has seen it all with more hope than ever for the future. Thank you again to CSL Bearing, and remember to check out www.portraitsofprogress.com or you can click on the link in the program notes. Okay, Patrick, I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Now, this interview, this interview I thought was fantastic, but you didn't really get a chance because of professionalism to like actually <laughs> share your like your thoughts and your stance on this whole thing about patient influencers. I'm dying to know what you think. Like what what do you think? Well, it's interesting you say that because to be honest, I don't you know, we don't book guests on Bloodstream to like go after them, right? right that's not right, right, that's right, not right. what we're about. But I was anticipating perhaps like a little bit more, I don't know if contentiousness or disagreement or debate. I don't know what the word is, but I was I was kind of anticipating with that with Aaron a little bit more. But as soon as I met her, as soon as the conversation started and given where it went, it, it didn't actually feel, I mean, to your point, I didn't want to overly just throw my projections and my point of view mm -hmm over top of what she was saying. Mm -hmm. She was on to share her work and her points of view. Mm -hmm. The listeners are to hear that. And then, you know, if anything, mm -hmm. this would be the moment mm -hmm. for me to kind of share more. So I guess those two things were happening. One, it just didn't feel like, oh, I don't think I maybe have a disagreement with you when I thought I did. And two, I wanted to make sure that she was able and given the platform to share what she wanted to share and to answer the questions I had without me overlaying my own stuff onto yeah. it too, too much. So yeah, yeah. Um, I will say I get a little defensive when I see articles or hear of things where the pain or problem in healthcare is centered around the patient. So in this case, when I first saw this thing around patient influencers and it felt like um, my first take was, oh, this is a negative thing about mm -hmm. patients who are communicating about healthcare online. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. like my first you know, knee-jerk reaction mm -hmm. to it. And I get like I said, defensive, because from my point of view, there are influences from all corners of the world. And if we're talking about healthcare, there are influences from all corners of the healthcare industry. Right. So why is it that the patient, the person who has the lived experience, the per the peer-to-peer -peer connection with other people living, you know, walking the walk, mm -hmm. why are we centering around their influence and in any way suggesting it be problematic? I, I do appreciate that if there's a, a patient who's working with a company and there was something with Kim Kardashian and I think maybe some kind of medication years yeah. ago and there yeah. like wasn't a disclosure that it was yeah. a paid spot. And so that sort of started this wave yeah. of, oh, we need to regulate when there's paid promotion. And if it's right. around the healthcare thing, we got to put certain parameters around that. Great. Put the parameters around it. Make sure it's appropriate. But then what's the problem? So. I guess I was anticipating having a little bit more of an argument with her about mm -hmm. what are we really trying to say mm -hmm. and like uh, fix here. But as we spoke, I felt like we were actually more aligned than we weren't. And perhaps it was just my own perceptions that clouded what I, you know, um, interpreted the article and her work to be about when I first saw it. But I'm really curious to know, having listened to it and now having heard this, 
you know, you and I haven't had a chance off mic to talk about this. So I don't know what you're about to say or what your thoughts are. Well, I guess that was my thing. Like, I I feel like she was not necessarily saying that it was the patient that is the, you know, nucleus of the problem, if you will. It was like a larger thing. And like we have one of the things that she said is, you know, we have so much content. We, We scroll through content daily like sometimes I don't even register how much it like kind of aligns your thinking almost in a way and so Mm. this is just a part of it it's not going away but one of the stats that blew my mind was the last time that the FDA updated guidelines around social media was 2014 yeah I mean how we you know ingest Content is so different now. I, you know, I am not on a lot of the video. I, I have not gotten into the video content. I'm not a TikToker. I haven't even gotten into reels in Instagram. But I can imagine if people are just saying something, which I'm guessing is what is happening, because that is that is valuable content. That's where it can get like, well, where's where's the regulation of that? Mm-hmm. I, one of the things I love. I loved, I loved, I loved that she said, because I've never heard it this way, and it is so achingly true to me. The reality of having a chronic illness is that there is self-management, and self-management is required. I think that was one of her quotes. Like, it's not, it's like, well, maybe you should, it is self-management. Watching my mother literally self-manage herself, battle with herself, over her diabetes through, I mean, uh, over 20 years. It is constant. It never goes away. It is always in the back of her mind. Anything that she eats, it's there. Whether she, it, you know, engages with it or not, it is there. And it is it is literally her battle. It mm-hmm. is your battle with hemophilia. Like, mm-hmm. a doctor can come in and, like, say a thing. But, like, you're going to have to live it every day, every minute of every life. Mm -hmm. And I just think that the importance, and she did say this too, the value of having patient communities online is like, she she didn't even see any um, harm in like what was happening. People Mm -hmm. aren't mean there. They're not, I mean, you know, it's like not a- supportive. It's a supportive space because it's like, oh gosh, you have my thing? Right. Well, here's the thing. So I think I, I see it as a bigger issue of like, well, why you know we're what's happening here at a at a like how do we regulate this i would hate for i don't think it's this is another thing and maybe i'm maybe this is not true but i don't think it's possible for someone to quote unquote misuse a drug because you have to go through a physician in order to get it now you can go into your doctor's office Mm. and say i heard kim kardashian talk about this and i would love to do that great that doctor has to be like (laughs) right great yeah good here's the conversation starter great you know, one of the things that I thought of listening to this, because my migraine medication is uh, repped by Khloe Kardashian, which has been like a bit like since I started, I was like, I'm on the Khloe Kardashian meds. But I think like from a drug company perspective, genius, because I immediately knew that drug name. I immediately knew where it was, but I didn't ask. That was a physician going, you know, in there. But all of her stuff around the drug is basically on her experience it's not necessarily the scientific or clinical like they're for some people that drug wouldn't work right and that's something that i learned like when my doctor started talking me through this it's like oh well obviously your your you know chemical is is being affected by this drug in a positive way it Mm -hmm. doesn't happen for everybody else none of that is said in the messaging 
which is like, does is that weird? Regardless, I don't think it's Khloe Kardashian's fault. It's working for her. Right. And it gets back to your point of where's the line? What 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 does need to be sort yeah. of regulated or standardized in some way? Yeah. I, I'm glad you called out Aaron's comments about the online groups and, and the positivity of them and, and whatnot. And again, that's why I think actually she and I were more like in alignment yeah. than my, my knee-jerk reaction led me to believe we were. Yeah. Because I do go a little into that defensive place kind of quickly. Yeah. I don't like when it feels as though problems with the system, are the pain of it is squeezed onto the patients. Right. You know, it, like that's not appropriate. The patient, they have enough already burdened by something they didn't choose. Hundred percent. A screwed up system. Yes. Figure it out somewhere yes. else in the system. Don't yes. figure it out at that point of the yes. chain. But at the same time, you know, if this was totally unregulated and completely without any ethical considerations, it's not hard to see how it could become very problematic to have drug makers all over right. the place partnering with influential patients right. to help push their drug. Of, right. Yes, there's like a terrible way to do almost anything. But to hear from someone who, who, again, like walks that same walk, like you said, you have my thing. Yes. To hear from that person's experience. I just told you about the the, the 20 minutes I had for socialization at the Pennsylvania meeting. Yeah. I spent to talking to like eight guys with hemophilia about ankle stuff. He got his replaced and is Mr. Replacement. Good for him. He got his fused and is Mr. Fusion. Good for him. He's wondering what he's going to do. It was literally like pick your yeah. own. Everybody had a different, they were in a different spot. Yeah. It was all valuable to me, yeah. not because I'm going to mimic exactly what anyone did or shared, but because they shared their authentic lived experience yeah. of something that not a lot of people live or can share about. And I kind of think with this patient influencer thing, because the influencer, like separate from drugs and chronic disease, influencer culture, you get sent something in the mail, like a face cream, and you're supposed to make a video and you'll get a certain amount of money mm. for that video. I don't, I mean, you know, they can, they say whatever. Like, I love this face cream, but like, right. I 10 bucks, they don't use the actual face cream. Sure. But like, you have to be a patient on the product to do that. Right. So I'm real weird about it. I used to, like, as a chapter leader, I used to be real, like, I don't want to talk about drugs. I don't want to talk about drugs in our space. Like, I just want, you know, patients to be as free as possible without that like marketing edge and i've switched a little bit because it's it's important especially in this paradigm shift of hemophilia treatment especially mm. like let's talk there's a lot to talk about about it and let's see what everybody's doing and i think there are and and it's it's, it's a part of this the self-management there is like you know it, it's important to understand how marketers influence their data. And so, you know, to be as well-rounded in your research as possible, I think is really valuable. And to choose your health team with care and a lot of patience, because, you know, maybe the first person you meet isn't going to be great. You have to kind of learn, you know, where they are in their health literacy, where they are in their empathy, what you need mm. from them. And I think that's a continual thing. Mm. Um, my mother's journey with doctors has been extraordinary. I mean, she really? has just all over the place. Mm. And it's been a huge empowerment thing for her because she has like learned to actually like now she goes in I'm so proud she actually goes in with a list and is like this is what I need like let's talk about this good for her but oh my god it's taken her like decades I mean if she was on here she would be like I it's taken me decades to get because you know the doctor is always right yeah 
Well, we've talked about this. I, in those in doctor's rooms, can yes! show up and need to have my list. I need to have my notes. Yes. Like, I, do, I went through this with all the foot stuff not yes. long ago. Like, Natalie, after one of my meetings, she asked me, like, two or three questions. Oh, when did they say you could shower? Oh, when could you do that? And I was like, yeah. uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. And she was like, I'm, you're not going to the, any of these anymore by yourself. You're terrible at this. <laughs> and I was like, I kind of am. You know, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but like your mom, I find write that it down it's got to be on the pad or i just going to walk in and be like, am I healthy? Yeah. Okay, bye. Yeah. Ugh. Um, but I'll, to put a button on it, I'm, I appreciate that Aaron came on. I appreciate this work very much. I think it's important that there are people who take seriously the impact that patients and, and a patient community has on itself. Yeah. I, I think that's really important work. So to have somebody with her diverse background who is interested in this and is studying it and is publishing and talking about it, that's that's really important. And ultimately, I think, a good thing because yes. it enables conversations like the one you and I are having, yeah. too, to go yeah. forward. So, And I will say, listeners, if you have an influencer story, you know, email, mm. email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or, you know, all the things of social media, DM us or whatever. We want to hear about it and maybe we can have a chat if you have a personal story about that. So let us know. And with that being said, Flow co-host Jessica ah! Lauren Richmond is back with the latest from The Well, which this one features clips from uh, some beloved community members, Mike Hargit and Matt Taché. Oh, the Well spends them. some time looking back at the past to investigate how the past informs the present. Let's go to The Well. I don't feel being trapped by my past because my past has defined who I am today. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the things that I've gone through in the past. That was Mike Haggart, and I'm Jessica Richmond, or Jay Rich. And I have a confession. I am a time traveler, and so are you, of course. We're all traveling in the one direction time moves forward. But then again, here at The Well, we take quantum physics, mechanics, and causation into consideration to find that the past can impact the present moment even though it is gone. Well, then, what's the difference between acknowledging your past and getting stuck in it? That is the question. And I don't know if I have the answer, but we're going to spend the next couple minutes on the subject. Welcome to the well. We are standing by a wishing well. Are you who you are because of your past? Technically, probably. The body keeps the score, as they say. Staying in the present moment, mindfulness, is still an activity impacted by history. It may sound simple, but Occam's razor does suggest that the simplest answer is probably correct. Each of us is living a life that is a product of our history. Just because of, of everything that anybody has gone through, you know, whether it's challenge, whether it's a, a job loss, a relationship loss, in my case, a lot of health uh, issues that have been um, defined who I am because of my, my sick heart, my transplants, my ankle fusions, my multiple surgeries. There's, there's been so many things, but every person I've met, everything I've done along the way has opened new doors for me now. Now I'm living my encore because of those things I did in the past, if that makes sense. At the well, we, and by we, I mean I, talk about our mental state or state of mind, whether we are considering death, loss or suffering, aging, 
We're hanging out by this proverbial well to consider how we look at the world, specifically at the things often unlooked at, such as anger. Anger at the past for experiences we've encountered. The past that led us here. Gosh, it is important to recall the pathways, isn't it? But how do you recall the pathways that led you here without feeling trapped by their existence? Why would we feel trapped by their existence? They're just pathways that led us here. Matt, do you know what I mean? Switch to recording of Matt from HFA in the past. Have I ever felt trapped by my past? Yeah, I mean a little bit. The history of my brother and uh, my uncle definitely darkens a lot of my memories of my past. And I I just recently went to the HIV memorial in uh, Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. And yeah, just kind of looking around, seeing if I recognize these names, seeing, and it's a beautiful park and it's a beautiful memorial. But yeah, I, I, the, my past doesn't hold me back, but I definitely think it informs me. I think when I was younger, I had a lot more uh, anger towards the different pharmaceutical companies, the same as my mom kind of thing. But as the years go by, I can forgive but never forget. No, don't forget, right? Remember, remember the 5th of November, but also that living in the moment does not require anyone to ignore their past. In fact, as time travelers, it's really helpful to remember what year it is presently, what year you're from, and how the heck we all got here, to this well, in 2022. Hmm. All right, thank you, Jessica, and thank you, Erin, for contributing to today's episode. I'd also like to thank our presenting sponsor, Takeda, and our segment sponsors, Genentech and CSL Bearing. Amy Board, you and I are back again November 25th, Black Friday. Black Friday! Love Black Friday, gene therapy on Black Friday. Uh, Other than gene therapy (laughs) and takeaways from the roundtable, what can listeners expect to hear on November 25th? Well, we're going to do a sweet little episode about what we're grateful for this year. Everybody tune in. It's going to be... A whopper. <laughs> it's going to be a whopper. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be lots of ankle content. <laughs> lots of ankle content. Silent <laughs> producer Keith was just just shaking his head with vigor. Oh, God. I don't know he if he liked... He just gave me an eyeball roll, which is never good. I don't think they say whopper in Canada. I don't. I think he didn't understand the word. I think that's what happened. Oh, yeah. my God. That's all right. We'll tell him about it's it later. It's the name of a hamburger in America. And with that, <laughs> that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen and share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, postal workers, anybody you want. (laughs) And if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, if you've got influencer stories that you want to tell us about, or if you just need somebody new to email, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities <laughs> for our podcast or Believe Limited's films. Ooh, we've got films, folks. Oh my gosh, actually we have a lot. So if you are interested in sharing your story, email us or hit us up on social media. You can also connect with us with Bloodstream Media or us. Or us, humans, Amy and Patrick humans. On social, we're on all of them. We are. Except for TikTok. <laughs> I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Ward. And until next time, Black Friday, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.